If you will, turn in your Bibles to the 24th chapter, the Gospel of Luke, as we continue our study through the Word. So Pilate had washed his hands of the responsibility before the people. The people said, his blood be upon us and upon our children. And Pilate orders the crucifixion of an innocent man. Jesus is taken by the soldiers and he is ushered through the streets of Jerusalem. It is early in the morning and he comes to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and and there he is crucified, 9 a.m. From 9 a.m. till 12, it is light. From 12 to 3, it is dark. You'll remember that the religious leaders were mocking Jesus. The crowds were mocking Jesus. Even one of the thieves on the cross was blaspheming and mocking him. But you remember Jesus' response is that he prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. You remember that the other thief, he rebukes the, the one thief who was chastising the Lord. And he says, have you no fear of God? He says, we are being duly punished, but he has done no wrong. And he puts his trust in Jesus. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And you remember Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you this day, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus dismisses his spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You remember that Jesus said that no man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay my life down and I have the power to pick my life back up again. And so he dismisses his spirit three o'clock in the afternoon. It is closing in on sundown. The order is given for the crucified victims to have their legs broken. The guards come and break the two thieves' legs to hasten their demise, their death. But when they come to Jesus, he had already dismissed his spirit. They thrust a spear into his side to make sure that he hadn't passed out or was unconscious. And water and blood poured forth from his side. You remember that Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and asks for the body to be given to him. And he takes down the body of Jesus off the cross with the help of Nicodemus. They bring the body of Jesus to a garden tomb, a tomb that Joseph himself had, had carved out for his family. No one had ever used it yet. And Nicodemus and Joseph, they quickly put the spices uh, on him and they quickly wrap him up uh, in tomb clothes and place him into the tomb and, and seal it with the rock. You remember that the women that were at the cross, they had followed at a distance and they waited to watch. They followed all the way to the tomb and watched as Jesus was placed into the tomb. The sun was setting. The Sabbath was now upon them as they returned back to their houses. The markets would be closing at sundown. And they went and purchased and got the materials that they needed. They saw the way that Jesus had been hastily prepared for his burial. And, and love, 
their devotion, their compassion wouldn't allow them to leave Jesus in that condition in the tomb. They purposed in their heart to circle back and to give him a careful, proper, honorable burial. Sabbath begins. All Israel shuts down. On Friday evening, everything stops when that sun goes down. And and there is no activity in the nation until Saturday evening, 24 hours later. When that sun goes down on Saturday night, then Israel wakes back up again. The market's all open and everybody is out and about. The women could have gone and prepared Jesus's body, but it was nighttime. And they wanted the clear light of day to be able to take their time and to be able to prepare Jesus's body. So they make a plan that first thing in the morning at the crack of dawn, that they are going to be up and that they will head to the tomb to be able to, to minister to the body of Jesus. Luke's gospel picks it up right there in this 24th chapter, beginning in verse 1, and it says that now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Mark's gospel tells us that as they were heading to the tomb, they had a conversation amongst themselves. They, they had a problem, and that was the giant circular stone that was in front of the tomb. Now, a tomb would be carved out of stone, out of the rock itself, and, and then you would have a giant circular stone, and there would be a slant that would roll down into the place right in front of the entrance and there would be a notch that would be carved out. There would be a notch at the top of the ramp and there would be a notch at the bottom of the ramp. And so when the tomb was not in use, the tomb would be open and that circular stone would be up in the top notch. It's easy to take and to rock it out of that top notch and then just roll it down the track into that bottom notch and to seal the tomb. Not so easy to unseat it and to roll it back up that ramp to the top notch. They had the spices, they had everything that they needed, but how are they going to get that stone unseated and up that ramp? Have you ever had a great plan except one problem with it? <laughs> that was their problem right there. They, they were ready, they had their stuff, they were on their way, but they were like, oh yeah. And they had already seen the size of the stone. These are big stones uh, that they roll in front. They're flat and round, uh, but they are large and weigh tremendously tremendous amounts of of weight. And and so they come. They hadn't solved it. They hadn't figured out what they were going to do and how they were going to get that that stone rolled away from the front. But it says, but as they got there, they found that the stone was already rolled away from the tomb. I love the way that God is always in front of us. He is out before us and taking care of us and watching over us here. In fact, the other gospels tell us, Matthew tells us that there was an earthquake and an angel of the Lord himself had descended from heaven and had rolled back the stone and then sat on top of the stone. 
They come now excited that the stone is rolled away, but when they peer into the tomb to now get Jesus' body to prepare it, the tomb is empty. They went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. They look in and Jesus' body is gone. His grave clothes are still there. But Jesus is gone. And they're looking at this and they're trying to make sense and process through what is going on here when suddenly there's two other individuals, two men. We see that the other gospels let us know that these men in shining garments here were actually angels. The shining garments, the word shining there is the same word that described Jesus at his transfiguration when his white was dazzling white in that gleaming, shining. Then as they were afraid, verse 5, and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. So the women are frightened by the presence of these angels, and they bow their faces right down into the dirt. They just bow down and put their face into the dirt. And the angels ask them a question. Why are you seeking the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. And they're trying to process these words that the angels are saying. And the angels remind them, remember just as you heard him say as far back as Galilee, Jesus had been declaring that he must go to Jerusalem, that he would be betrayed, that he would be crucified, but that on the third day he would rise again. He had been saying that over and over and over to them. He said to them as they left Jericho, we must go up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and he is going to be mocked and spit upon and he will be crucified and on the third day he will rise again. But they did not understand what Jesus was saying. In verse 8 it says, and they remembered his words. They remembered the words that Jesus had said. This time, now, with incomprehension. How could they not understand it? Jesus said over and over and over again that he was going to be crucified, buried, and that he was going to rise again on the third day. It's interesting that when you look at the account of Mary and Martha, when Lazarus dies and they had called for Jesus to come and when Jesus finally shows up, you'll remember that Martha says to him, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And, and Jesus says to him that, that he will rise again. And they said, we know that he will rise again on the day of the resurrection. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, they didn't understand when Jesus says that he is going to rise again. They had the understanding that everybody dies and that there is a resurrection and everybody is going to be resurrected again. When Jesus says that he is going to be crucified and he's going to be buried and he's going to rise again, 
they could have very well just heard that uh, as he's going to rise again in the resurrection, in the general resurrection, and not really understand what this whole three-day thing meant and, and that part uh, there. But now, suddenly, as the angels illumine the truth of what Jesus had been speaking and draw attention to it, they remember what he said, but this time now they have the clarity of hindsight to be able to interpret the things that Jesus had said. And suddenly they get excited. We see that they are told now to go and to tell the others, the angels tell them that. And it says in verse 9, then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. I think of the heaviness of their hearts and the way that they trudged off to the tomb first thing in the morning to prepare the broken body of our Lord, who had been scourged and beaten and bloodied and crucified, and now they are going to go and tenderly wash and clean him and put the spices upon him and gently wrap him in his final grave and cloth. It was a, a somber task, one that love and devotion and compassion compelled them into, but their journey to that tomb in the morning was heavy. What had happened? How did Jesus end up crucified? How is it that they had just gone from singing the Hosannas and Son of David on the triumphal entry to now finding themselves a week later walking to the tomb to, to bury him properly? But suddenly now as they get there, that heaviness of heart was turned into an exuberance that he is not dead, but he is in fact alive. And, and now go and tell the apostles, the, the 11 and the others that he is not dead, but he is risen. And with great joy did they then run down to go and tell the apostles and the others this great news. Isn't it fun when you have good news? news to deliver. Isn't it fun to give somebody really good news? This wasn't like good news. This was like good, 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 unbelievable. This was the greatest news ever to deliver to somebody that Jesus Christ is alive. And so they race to the apostles, the lightness of their steps compared to the heaviness that they had just traipsed down there with. And they come and they tell everybody the glorious good news that he's not dead, he's alive, that he is risen. And verse 11, look at the reception and it says, and their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. What? But you have to remember the grief that the apostles were in, the great fear and confusion. Their whole lives just detonated right in front of them. Jesus, who was the master over every single situation and circumstance that could command the spirits, the wind and the waves, allowed them to arrest him. And they took him captive and they 
crucified him and he's dead? The religious leaders had laid hold uh, of Jesus and, and they crucified him. What would happen to the apostles now? What would happen to the inner circle if they did that to Jesus? What are they going to do to us? You remember how when Peter was in the courtyard of the high priest, they were seeking to identify who was it that was with Jesus. Weren't you with Jesus? Weren't you one of them? And no doubt as Jesus was hung on a cross, the, the great fear was that there was a cross in store for each and every one of these apostles. And now every knock on the door no doubt startled them to wonder if those are soldiers that have come to arrest them. What are we going to do with our lives? Do we scatter? Do we depart? Do we stay together? What happened? How did Jesus get crucified? <laughs> And suddenly now, as they are in grief over the loss of Christ and, and their own lives and the turmoil that they're in, that the women come back and say that we saw angels and they said he's alive. And yeah, right. <laughs> they heard the words, but there's no body. You didn't see Jesus just an empty tomb and angels talk to you. Okay. We're grieving, but you're really grieving. <laughs> and while they didn't believe, it did spark something in Peter's heart. Peter doesn't just remain there. Not only was Peter suffering the same sorrow, the same loss of everybody else, but, but he was even deeper immersed into it because of his denial of even knowing the Lord and his own failure on top of that. And he heard that Jesus is alive. And something sparked inside of his heart. He's alive? He's alive? He's risen? And it says that Jesus departs now and he heads to the tomb. He doesn't just head to the tomb. He doesn't just saunter off to investigate these claims. He doesn't walk. He doesn't jog. He doesn't trot. He runs. He runs to the tomb. It says that Peter arose and ran to the tomb. And he gets there, it says, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. Uh, Luke records only Peter's journey to that tomb. But John also jumped up with Peter. And he also ran. He lets us know in his gospel that he actually got there first. <laughs> Just want to set the record straight that we did have a race and <laughs> I won. <laughs> Peter arrives out of breath. He's out of breath because he lost the race. <laughs> he gets there huffing and puffing, having run to the tomb. And while John got there first, John doesn't go in first. He peers in, but when Peter gets there, he just pushes John aside, and he goes right in. He goes into the tomb. If you go to Israel today, just outside of the Damascus gate, 
there is a, a tomb that many believe might possibly be the actual tomb that Jesus Christ himself was interned in. It sits up above what is now a bus station, a busy bus station that is in operation even to this day. But, but in that tomb, which if you go to Israel, you can actually stoop down and enter into. You stoop through the doorway and you enter into the antechamber. The antechamber is about five feet by five feet. It's about five and a half feet tall. If you're a six footer, you're going to hunch inside that tomb. And off to your right as you enter into the tomb is another chamber connected to it. And there are the two pyres, the two stone beds where the bodies would be laid. As Peter steps in, stoops into that tomb and looks, he sees where Jesus' body had been laid. But it is perplexing to him because as he looks, he sees the grave clothes that had been wrapped around Jesus' body, but Jesus' body is not in those clothes. Off to the side was the kerchief that was folded and set over that had covered Jesus' face. But the, the linen cloth, how did Jesus' body get out of the linen cloths that were still there in the grave? And he is trying to process what he is seeing. What does it mean? Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? And it says that, that he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. In Luke's gospel, when he says that people marvel, they wonder about things that are hard to understand. These things happened first thing in the morning. In Luke's gospel on the final day here of the resurrection, we're going to see that he slices it into three segments. He gives us the events that happened in the morning. He'll jump to the afternoon and then he'll jump again to the evening. He leaves us here with Peter departing and marveling at the meaning. What does that, what does it mean? What does it mean? No doubt the news flashed through Jerusalem. I mean flashed through Jerusalem. That Jesus' body is not in the tomb any longer. And the rumor mill became rife with this news. And, and the interpretation, what does it mean? Everybody was asking the same question. What does it mean? Where, where is Jesus? And and it says in verse 13, now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. Two of Jesus' disciples, not two of the 11. Remember there had been 12, Judas betrayed Jesus, and then he went out and hung himself. So there were now 11 apostles uh, here. There are many disciples. Two of the disciples here are heading out of Jerusalem. And they're, they're heading to a town, Emmaus, seven miles away. 
The average foot, foot speed of a person walking is about three miles an hour. And so it's about a two-hour walk that they have, a two-hour journey to get from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And it is the afternoon, late afternoon. And it says, verse 14, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Does Jesus have a sense of humor or what? He's like, I am going to totally mess with these guys right now. And here they are, and, and they're walking, and once again, they are sad, and they are confused, and they are talking about the events that had just transpired. I mean, a week ago had been the triumphal entry of Jesus, and, and the whole city came out to welcome the Messiah and to sing the hallelujahs to the Son of David. And now he was crucified, but now his body is missing. And, and these are the things that they are talking about as they are walking along the road. And Jesus comes up alongside of them. And, and it says in verse 17, and he said to them, what kind of conversation is that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? In other words, guys, why are you so sad? What are you guys talking about? <laughs> And they answer him, verse 18. Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? <laughs> in other words, did you just fall off of a turnip truck? <laughs> what is wrong with you? What do you mean, why are we sad? Everybody in the whole city is sad. The entire city is sad. The entire city is dumbfounded at what had just happened, at what had transpired. Jesus was loved of the people. In fact, the religious leaders were afraid because of the great love that the people had for Jesus and of his amazing popularity. And now when the whole city found out that he had been crucified, that news rifled through the entire city of Jerusalem. The, the crucifixion had taken place right before the Sabbath, and no doubt during the Sabbath, everybody was talking about the, the events that had transpired. And, and now here they are. He says, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? Don't you know what just happened in our city? And he said to them, what things? <laughs> what things? What things? I'll tell you what things. And so they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and to all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. It was one thing when John the Baptist was beheaded. He was beheaded by Herod. And Herod wasn't exactly loved of the people. And he was in an illicit relationship with his brother's wife and was in sin. And John stood against that sin. And so he was executed. But Jesus wasn't executed by Herod. It was by their chief 
priests and by the Sanhedrin, by the leaders of our nation were the ones that took Jesus and had him crucified. The ones that run the temple and the worship of our nation took Jesus and had him crucified. And this is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. In fact, the conversation that happened all during Holy Week, every nook and cranny of Jerusalem was talking about one thing, Jesus. And the question upon everybody's lips was, who do you think that Jesus is? Do you think that he's just a prophet? Everybody believed that he was a prophet. The question wasn't whether or not he was a prophet. No one had power and authority like Jesus had ever demonstrated. Even the greatest of all prophets didn't have the power and authority that Jesus came and demonstrated. They all knew that he was a prophet. The question is, is he the promised prophet? Is he the Messiah? Is he going to set up the kingdom right now during during Passover, during our, our, our national deliverance day, and are we going to overthrow Rome underneath his power? Is he going to finally ascend to the promised seat of David and set up his rule and reign? What do you think? And that was the conversation that was happening all throughout. Jesus every day marched right into the temple, right before the religious leaders. And he sat there and he taught the people and the people just were talking about him. And the next thing they heard, he's crucified. What? They, the Sanhedrin took him? They, brought him before Pilate, and they crucified him. No. Yeah. No. (laughs) We had hoped. (laughs) The scourge of the Roman occupation would be done. That Rome would be thrust out and The promised glory that God had given to our nation was about to be realized. We had hoped. That it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And indeed, beside all this, today is the third day since these things happened. To them, this third day, what should have been the day of hope for them was the day that hope was extinguished. They felt that it was all completely lost now. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us and they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And certain of those who went with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. We didn't, there's no corroborating evidence. Some women said, we saw a vision of angels. That's what we were talking about. Those are the things that everybody's talking about. And then he said to them, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? He says, 
didn't Christ need to? Didn't the Messiah need to suffer and, and to go through these things? Aren't these the things that the prophets had told about in the holy scriptures? And it says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He doesn't reveal himself yet. But he conducts the greatest Bible study in the history of the world. <laughs> it says that he begins with Moses. Remember that the Bible begins with the writings of Moses. Genesis was written by Moses. The first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all written by Moses. You remember that the Sadducees, they declare that only the first five books were inspired, but Jesus begins with the writings of Moses and goes through all of the prophets. And what does he do? He shows that the entire Old Testament is nothing other than a portrait of Jesus Christ. And he begins begins to show them how the Messiah was painted throughout the entire Old Testament. No doubt he started right in Genesis and he started right after Adam and Eve had just sinned. When sin and the corruption of sin entered into the world, that was when God, as he was removing them from the garden, declared that he would solve the sin issue that would now infect every single human being that he would send a redeemer and that he would be the one that would crush the head of Satan, but that Satan would bite the heel of the Lord. The biting of the heel, not destroying him, but the biting of the heel was a reference to the crucifixion and the promise now of the deliverer who would come and rescue us from our sin. No doubt he went to Abraham, who God then chose to be the father of the nations of God's people. And from him, the promise that all nations in the world would be blessed through the offspring, that he was going to make him a mighty nation. And out of that mighty nation, that Messiah that had been promised all the way back to Adam and Eve, that out of Adam and his offspring would come the Messiah. And no doubt he would talk to them about Jacob and about the 12 tribes of Israel and out of that Judah, one of the sons. And it was the promise that out of Judah itself, now the scepter bearer would come and he would come from the tribe of Judah. No doubt he would go on to talk about the fact that the Messiah is gonna be a priest, a high priest, uh, after the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood, not out of the Aaron, and priesthood, but out of a completely different order. And he will sit at the right hand of the Father who will make intercession for you and for me. No doubt he would go on to talk about the fact that he was the voice in the burning bush that spoke to Moses, that he himself is the Passover lamb and that all of the Passover points to the fact that the shed blood of the lamb would be that which would pass over judgment upon them and that he is none other than the Passover lamb. He would no doubt take him through the writings of Moses to where Moses declared that there's a prophet coming after me who is even greater than me and his voice you shall hear. He is the voice that is greater than Moses. Jesus would have continued to expound the scriptures and to show them how he himself was the captain of the Lord's army who met with Joshua and gave him the battle plan to take down Jericho as he led them across the Jordan River and into the promised land. 
No doubt he would have showed them that he is the kinsman redeemer of Boaz and Ruth and that he will take a Gentile bride from all of the nations and that we will be his bride. No doubt he talked to him about David and the promise to David that he would build a house from David and that David, who was of the tribe of Judah, his son, his descendant now would be the very promised Messiah who would sit upon the throne of David and who would rule in righteousness and whose reign would have no end. No doubt he showed him that he is the suffering servant of Psalm 22, but that he is also the good shepherd of Psalm 23. He would have taken him through the scriptures and showed that he is the wisdom of the Proverbs, and that he is the suffering servant that is portraited in Isaiah 53, that he is the princely Messiah that Daniel had foretold. And, and he would have showed how in Job that he is our timeless redeemer, that in the book of Psalms that he is our morning song. He would have showed that he is in Proverbs wisdom's cry to humanity, that in the Song of Solomon that he is the lover's dream, that in the book of Daniel that he is the stranger that stood in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, back in Abednego. He would have continued through the scripture showing him in every passage, in every portrait, in every typology that it is all about the savior of the world who would come and rescue us from our sin. He would have showed that in Joel that he is the spirit's power, that in Micah he is a promise of peace, that in Zechariah that he is our fountain, and that in Malachi that he is the son of righteousness with healing rising in his wings. He would have showed him that the scriptures call him the redeemer, that he is the rose of Sharon, that he is the wonderful counselor, that he is the prince of peace, that he is the bridegroom, that he is the friend, that he is the son of man, that he is the holy one, that he is the horn of salvation, that he is our offspring, that he is the word of God, that he is the lamb of God, that he is the only begotten son, the living water, the bread of life, the last Adam, the chief cornerstone, that he is the head of the church, that he is the firstborn over all creation, that he is the heir of all things, the radiance of God's glory, that he is the apostle of our profession, our high priest, that he is the alpha and omega, the root and the offspring, the bright and morning star, that he is the king of kings, the prince of peace, the son of man, the lamb of God, the great I am. He is Jesus Christ, and he is the Messiah. And he would have opened up the word of God and showed them and instructed them that all of the apostles, that all of the prophets, that all of the holy men had written of one divine absolute truth that God loves us, that God cares about you, that he has come to set us free, that he has come to deliver us of our sins, that he has come to open up the gates of heaven, that he has come to usher in his kingdom, and that he loves you so much that he died for you, and that his desire is that you would spend eternity with him, that he came to let us know that there is no other way, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through me. 
He says to them, oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had written. The word of God, the Old Testament was written on multiple continents in multiple language over thousands of years by many different authors of all different backgrounds and all of it orchestrated underneath the Holy Spirit's divine operation to be a testimony and a glory of the one who would come to set us free and who would rescue us from sin. Those disciples, they wavered in their faith. They didn't quite know what to believe. And and what does Jesus do? Jesus comes down and he illuminates the truth in their hearts. He breaks out the Bible study and shows them the clarity of the scriptures and the authority and power of God as made manifest through the word of God. And he helped them now to be able to engage Christ by faith and to be able to enter into that relationship with him. And and I want you to know that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he is that good shepherd that leaves the 99 to go and to get that one that is struggling, that one whose faith is teetering, who doesn't quite comprehend, who doesn't quite understand who hasn't quite given their heart over to the Lord that is struggling with the things that the world says that good people go to heaven and that all paths lead there and and Jesus Christ declares there is no other way but me and come take my hand and put your trust in me See, I have conquered the grave. I have conquered death. And I love you. And that extension of his grace and his mercy is to every single person that God creates. He loves every single one of us. He wills that none should perish, that all should come to everlasting life. And and he will take and nurture the bruised reed. He won't break it. (laughs) And the smoking flax, and he won't extinguish it. He... He is here to prop up your faith and to help you reach out to take his hand. And today his arms are open wide. Come, receive the gift of salvation. And if today he has nurtured your spirit, if he has helped your faith to now make it a saving faith, to be able to lay hold of him and affirm him, he says, I will never leave you. I will never let go of you. I will never depart you and I will never reject you. Come. Receive the gift of salvation. I lay down my life so that you can have life. I shed my blood so that your sins can be washed away. Will you but come and receive eternal life? And today that offer is extended to you. And if today is the day that God is working in your heart, if you're feeling uncomfortable and compressed right now, know that's the working of the Spirit on your heart right now. Know that the enemy is going to do every single thing he can to keep you seated right where you are and to not come and take the gift of salvation. He will try and confuse you and put fear into you. You don't want to embarrass yourself. You don't want to come in front of everybody and make a spectacle. Jesus says that if you will declare me before men, I will declare you before my heavenly Father. And so the offer is there. And the veracity of the word of God. That you will be welcomed into the kingdom if you will just come and receive him. 
And so now it's up to you. As we worship, it's time for you to respond to that gift. You have to come and get the gift and open it up and receive it. And if that's you today, then I want you to just jump up out of your seat and come down to the front. Don't let anything stop you. Let the Spirit lead you to your gift of salvation. And and I'll lead you in a prayer afterwards. But this is your time to come and receive Jesus now.